Hello and welcome to part two of the Social Empower episode on disparities in incarceration health. We thank those that were able to tune into part one. If you were not able to check that out, we do encourage you to go out and check that out as that is a great episode. Here in part two, we plan to discuss things that we can do in our everyday practice to be impactful with our incarcerated patient population. Check it out. So I guess informative, and I'm sure the listeners are very appreciative that may not have known, you know, like the background or how um, the system, I guess, before the patient even gets to us and like what's occurring, right? Because that trauma, like you said, is entering our patient encounters, you know, we're meeting them from ground zero and there's already that distrust there, right? Which like heavily impacts our physician relationship with them in the emergency departments. Um you know, you mentioned before the lack of standardization of care um, and incarceration health. Do we see like the scope of that changing? I mean, this highlights the importance of advocacy. Um, are there any current, I mean, especially in Louisiana, like bills or anything on a stream, you know, line as far as advocacy, how when it comes to the standardization of care, then in ways that we can maybe impact, you know, this um, clearly broken <laughs> system of triaging. Um, yeah, so we've had we've had a couple of different bills that we've tried to pass. We tried to pass something around the copay system, um, at least reducing the cost of the copay because it's so prohibitive. Um, that did not pass through. We did also try to pass an oversight system. Um, our hope was that perhaps there would be so you know so one of the other things that I like I'm a big proponent of and I think that on a national level this is one of the things that we should be advocating for is that the care of people in correctional facilities should come under the purview of health and human services right or department of health it should not come under the department of corrections because corrections does corrections they don't do health care and so to expect that they would be the ones who would manage and oversee health seems arbitrary. Um, also, most of the people who are working in corrections don't have, um, don't necessarily have the skill set. So, you know, if you're thinking about patients, so we have about, about 35,000 people that are incarcerated currently. And so if you think about the medical director for the Department of Corrections, who's having to oversee this large number of people, it's really a population health and a public health issue, right? And so the person who's overseeing this, the medical care for this really needs to have some experience in population health, really needs to understand what are all of the different things. And we don't have those people, but we know that there are agencies who do do that and do that well. Um, and so that should be under the purview of, of that, you know? And so that's, that's a goal that I have sort of a larger goal. I think that we should be advocating for that. Short of that, you know, what we tried to do was to say, well, let's at least have this medical oversight committee that would be outside physicians working with inside physicians. It didn't pass, but they but the DOC made an internal oversight um, committee. And one of the things that that internal medicine uh, internal oversight committee is looking at is people practicing with restricted licenses and how that's affecting healthcare for people both on the inside and the outside. Um, it's very opaque. We we know what the what the limitations are, what the restrictions are, because we did a sort of a public records request and a cross-matched it with LSBME, but we don't actually know how, how that's affecting care on the inside. We have some suspicions, but it's quite opaque and we don't quite know. Um, we, this year we passed, um, uh, something passed out of the 
the, the criminal justice committee, at least, which was we're asking for um, annual screenings for PTSD for people who are incarcerated. So, you know, we know that there's a large number of people who have trauma and who probably who probably fill, fulfill the categories for PTSD as well. Um, but there is no routine screening and therefore no routine treatment for people that have PTSD. And so there lots of people are coming out back into the population, both with, you know, sort of institutionalized behaviors, but also actual P untreated PTSD. So that's what we're, one of the things that we're looking at now. Um, on a, we, there's a something called the 1115 waiver, which is a Medicaid waiver that says, Hey, can we start providing medical? Can can Medicaid cover uh, cost for people while they're still incarcerated? California is the first state that passed that, and so we're very curious to see how it works for them. Um, but on a national level, there is a push to try to get to reverse this inmate exclusion act. In um, and I think if we're able to do that, you know, if we can get healthcare moved under Department of Health and Hospitals and get Medicaid, you know, healthcare dollars to pay for this, then maybe we're able to, to help with the medical care, you know, outside of, I mean, the, the larger, the larger goal is why are we incarcerating so many people in this country, right? Um, and the whole history of that, the political economy behind the mass incarceration epidemic we have. I mean, that's a whole, that's, that's, that's the work that we need to, to disassemble, right? These are all short gap measures to take care of people while they're there. Um, man, this is so impactful. Um, I think such an important conversation. Um, and it really just goes back in a lot of our, you know, disparities and health disparity conversations are really, you know, a lot of, I feel like what we do in social medicine, especially socially M is, you know, tertiary, right? You're looking back and you're trying to, like you said, kind of put the bandaid or um, do things within the restraints or the power of what we can based on like the system that doesn't exist. But it's so important, I think, to look at the root cause. And you highlighted that as far as, okay, we wouldn't even be here at this point or even talking about these things if, you know, X, Y, and Z didn't exist. So I think it's so important that we're talking about that and trying to look at different things to address like the root um, cause, um, which is so important. Um, to segue, I guess, into our part two, uh, what are some things, I guess, as residents that we can be aware of in taking care of this patient population, um, not just in Louisiana or maybe other states as well, maybe different things that we may not have thought about whenever we're discharging other patients out into the community. Um, I know, you know, we at UMC have like a discharge form from the emergency department, and that is more so just a suggestion, right? Like we have cleared, you know, we have deemed that they are medically cleared to go back to this facility. Um, this is what we recommend. Um, I think a lot of times due to formulary or cost or just what they deem is necessary at that point, a lot of those things aren't prescribed. And I realized that, um, you know, over my years and my training, what are some things I guess that we could be more cognizant of as we're discharging patients back into the facilities um, to do this in a way that can increase their chances, I guess, of success or, you know, increase like their medical um, advocacy when it comes to like safe discharges. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, you know, one, especially, um, well, for, so one, I think it's important to know what facility they're going back to. Um, there's no, people don't mind if you ask, you know, and so a lot of times you can just ask a question like whose custody, you know, where are you physically located and whose custody are you under? I oftentimes ask, have you had, have you gone to trial yet? Have you been sentenced yet? You know, because that helps me sort of know because someone may be coming out in 24 hours, somebody may be there for eight years, you don't really know, you know, and if it helps me to think if someone's in a jail facility, I know that what the access to care that they have is going to be different. In our system, it also helps me because um, our Department of Corrections, the state facilities have access to EPIC. And so I know that things that they're and they're looking at it every single day, you know, but the jails don't. And so the communication that I need to do is also different based on where this person is going to. Um, I'm also always thinking about, you know, um, if someone's really, really sick, I'm thinking about does this person qualify for compassionate release or medical parole or something like that. And whether they have been sentenced or not really changes um, some of the advocacy things you can do if you have someone who's really ill um, that you're seeing maybe in your emergency department and you're sort of like this person's just not going to do well going back into a jail facility. And if they haven't been even sentenced yet, you know, haven't had their day in trial, you can always talk with the DA and talk, you know, and say, hey, you know, we feel like this person's really sick. Um, we don't necessarily need to know the charges. That's up to the DA, right? That's the whole system that we have in place. Um, but there might be other alternatives, you know, could they do a home detention? Could they do home monitoring? Can they do any of these other things? Um, and so we've had some success, um, you know, having those conversations with our DA. Um, and so that's that's sort of the ways that they help. One of the things, you know, I tell everybody, regardless of where you're going to, the after visit summary that we print out for everybody. Now, safety and security and corrections is very clear that you cannot tell anybody a date of appointment. So you can't say Tuesday, May 13th, you're going to come back up to at 2 p.m. But what you can tell them is, hey, you know what, you really need to see a cardiologist in the next two to four weeks um, so that they are aware of what their medical needs are. So that after visit summary, I usually, you know, unless there's a date and time, um, which I don't think our hospital system does, but for other listeners, if their hospital system does that, you need to be very careful of that and at least cover it up. Um, but I print out that after visit summary and I review everything with them. You know, one of the all nowadays in this world of my chart, we all have easy access to our medical records. And it's very unfortunate when you're incarcerated, that right is also taken away your body, the right to your medical information and to your own health care is, is removed from you, you know. Um, and so I really make it a point to make sure that everybody knows these are the diagnoses you had. The, these are the procedures you had. This is what happened here. The people who saw you. And then this is what needs to happen. These are the medications you're going to go home. You know, you're going to go out on our recommendations. And this is how you're supposed to be taking it so that they know when they go back to the facility and they say, I'm supposed to be on three meds. Why am I only getting two? You know, hopefully they can ask those questions. Right. Um, for people who are going back into prison settings, so the jail is a little bit, like I said, it's, it is really no man's land. There are recommendations. Um, the prisons we have worked hard on, we being, you know, through legislation and, and federal consent decrees and all of these things that those suggestions are um, a bit more enforced. And so if someone is going back into a prison setting, they should really be doing what you're telling them to do. They should not be varying. Now it might be, hey, I'm recommending 
you know, lisinopril and they switch it to captopril or whatever, those things they should do, but there really shouldn't be major digressions from what your recommendations are if they're going back into a prison setting. Um, I do the same thing with the, you know, with people who are going back to prison. I ask, um, so I've been a strong advocate for having people who are incarcerated at the hospital maintain communication with families. I think that's another thing that, you know, if you were back at your facility, you could, if you wanted to call your your, you know, whoever loved one to say, I'm not feeling well, what do you think I should do all of these things? Um, but then they come into a hospital setting, we take that away from there, we, we put up all these barriers, you know. Um, and so I have been making it pretty routine for people who are, you know, who are sick um, to call the wardens um, or the medical directors of their facility, see who's on their visitation right, uh, visitation list, and really try to make sure that we are getting permission to uh, update family members. Um, and we've also, you know, had phones set up so that our patients can talk to um, talk to their families. You know, one of the saddest things I had, I had a woman who had a brain lesion and she needed to have surgery and she was having these recurrent seizures and um, she wanted to leave AMA to go back to her prison to call her family to discuss the surgery. I was like, this is ridiculous, right? Like, I mean, that should, that's, that, that just makes no sense. And so we were able to, you know, set up this phone call, have this conversation, do all of those things. But we as physicians need to advocate for that. Um, I think that sometimes we forget and, you know, we're, we, we don't know the rules right. and safety and security has such a presence that we kind of, you know, shrink away from that. But I think that as long as we kind of remember that what we would do for any patient, any other patient, if they wanted to have a conversation with their family before they said yes or no to a medical procedure, so should your patient who's in incarceration. They should not have to leave AMA to have that, you know, conversation. Um, and so uh, I advocate for that um, pretty strongly as well. And um and then, you know, like I said, getting permission from the wardens if they're on their visitation list to update families. And a lot of times I will update families with the same information. But, you know, one of the things that's important to remember, a lot of things that happen in prison, like when you're when you say, hey, I'm supposed to be seen by a cardiologist in four months and you six months have gone by and seven months have gone by and eight months have gone by. When you do get to that cardiologist, a lot of times it's because there's external pressure because family members are calling or community members are calling and that's how that actually happens. And so I engage families and update them and say, hey, you know what, your loved one has new diagnosis of congestive heart failure really needs to have a repeat ultrasound and a heart, you know, a, a, an appointment with a cardiologist so that they can ask the patient, you know, back at the prison and say, Hey, did this happen? And if not, then they can call to the warden or to the medical and say, Hey, you know what this needs to happen. And so the more people we have kind of aware of what needs to be the next steps, um, we can have people advocating for them. Um, if someone is in jail and you don't know how long they're going to be in, especially if they haven't been, you know, sentenced yet, um, I do oftentimes recommend sending them out with a prescription. So usually what happens is you have to give all of this to the correctional officers that are there with them and they 
they're, they're supposed to take it to the to the head of security back at the facility to make sure that it's not contraband. Um, and so ideally what happens is that they review it, they realize that, hey, we haven't, you know, disclosed anything that's going to put public safety at, at risk. And then they should hand those papers back to um, the person or put them in their um, in their release packet. And so if you have a prescription that you feel like, hey, this person really needs to to continue, you know, um, a lot of times I'll say, just put that prescription in there. Um, <clears throat> for our particular setting, there <laughs> should be flyers for the formerly incarcerated transitions clinic, um, hopefully circulating somewhere around the ED. You can always give those to them as well, and they can be put into their release packets. And so at least we have some way of when they get out, you know, they can connect with some sort of a medical provider and we have access to Epic and we can sort of piece things together. Um, and so I would recommend that for the AD residents here and for people who are not here or listening from other places, you know, look to see um, if there are any reentry medical care clinics in, and if there's not, maybe you want to start one. <laughs> No, I love it. Um, I feel like every time we speak or I am around you, I learn so much. Um, you are amazing as far as what you are doing with advocacy in our community, what you're doing with the fit clinic, um, especially at the city level. And, you know, it's just amazing to kind of hear all the amazing things that you have done. Um, but it's also very like encouraging, um, you know, we think in the emergency department, we don't have any impact. And I think there's such small ways um, or large ways that we can make an impact with our patients in the emergency department. So I thank you so much for um, coming and speaking with our listeners. And, um, you know, I hope to have you back for more and more sessions because I know that this is needed and I'm sure um, there are many more questions that may come from this. So I look forward to um, further discussions for sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much.